was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by our guest, press agent Susan L. Shulman. Susan L. Shulman has been the press agent for such shows as Company, Follies, Applause, Crazy For You, Dancin', State Fair, Requiem for a Heavyweight, Sly Fox, Pal Joey, Death of a Salesman, Where's Charlie, Scapino, Inner City, Thieves, Nash at Nine, The Night of the Iguana, Death and the Maiden, Romeo and Juliet, The Poison Tree, The Glass Menagerie, Ah Wilderness, An American Millionaire, and more. Out of town and on the road, she has also represented Miss Moffat, The Merchant, State Fair, Man of La Mancha, Porgy and Bess, and more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with this true veteran of the stage. So how did you first get interested in theater? Okay, well, I grew up in New York. I was, a th- I was like you, I was a theater kid. And my parents took me to my first Broadway show when I was five, because they loved the theater too, but they had nothing to do with the theater. And it was a musical by Yip Harburg called Flahooly, oh. which starred Barbara Cook, her Broadway debut, and full-size Bill Baird marionettes. And after the show, they, they let kids come backstage to, to meet the marionettes. And I thought that was just wonderful because I, I was more impressed with the marionettes evidently than the people in the show. And that was my first show, the first show I saw. And then a few years later, I saw Peter Pan with Mary Martin and I was a goner. So that's how I got started. But I came from a family that had no connection with the theater at all. And I didn't know anybody in the theater. I just thought it was wonderful. And I used to stand outside stage doors before it was a thing. And I would, I didn't really care if I got an autograph. I didn't really want an autograph. I wanted to talk to them. I wanted to tell them how they had impacted my life. And sometimes they would be charmed and they would say, would you like to come backstage? Or, you know, people were very nice and they would, they were very kind to me. So I thought everybody was like that in the theater. You know, I didn't know, Um, but that's how it started. So you were saying your family wasn't involved in the arts at all, but were they still supportive of you wanting to be involved in the arts? Yes, but I think my mother always thought it would be nice if I got a real job. You know, I think she liked the fact that I was doing what I loved. I mean, she certainly, they were certainly supportive. My, my mother was, was a, a psychologist and my father had his own business. And so they, but they loved the theater. They, they used to go to the theater when they were first dating and they would, there was a, a discount place that like the TDF, like the text booth, but the predecessor was a, a drugstore someplace where you, at the last minute they would sell really cheap seats for like 75 cents or something. And so people with no money, like my parents at the time, would go there like at 10 minutes before the curtain and they could get tickets for, you know, up in the, up in the gods for 75 cents. And so my, my parents used to say they courted 
going, sitting up in the, you know, in the last row of the balcony for 75 cents. And then they would go to um, someplace for like a hot dog afterwards. And they, they'd had an evening on the town for like $2, you know, <laughs> it's it very good. But no, they, my mother thought it was um, very interesting. I think she didn't quite get what it was that I did at the beginning. Uh, but she did like that I would get tickets for her and her friends for things. She liked that part. So yes, but uh, totally supportive. Yeah. Were there other early shows that you saw that you liked a lot or that influenced you to go into? Um, well, uh, interestingly, both in high school and in college, I, w I grew up in New York and I went to Hunter College High School, Hunter College Elementary School too. And when I was in high school, there was a program where for either 50 cents or a dollar, you could see Broadway shows. And I don't know whether it was a, I don't know whether it was a, a city school program. I don't know what it was from, but periodically they would announce that we could all see such and such for 50 cents. And it was things like maybe the second or third cast of something. So for instance, I saw every Harold Hill in the Music Man. So I saw all of them. I saw Robert Preston for like the real price, but then they'd say, well, we have tickets for next Wednesday or next whatever for um, whoever had replaced him. And I would think, great, okay. And I would go. I saw every Professor Higgins, again, probably 50 cents or a dollar. So I saw, I saw all the big shows you know, that either my parents took me to or later that I bought cheap seats up in the balcony for. But then later, I would see them again and again just because I could. It was wonderful. And in college, there was something like that too. And I'm not sure how that came about. But we used to get really cheap seats for things. And so I saw a lot of things that I might not have gone to. Like, I remember seeing Tiny Alice, the Edward Albee play. And I don't think I would have, in college, I don't think I was sophisticated enough to have thought I should go see that. Um, and I'm not sure I understood it anyway at that age, but I, because we could get these really inexpensive tickets, I did go. So it was, it really, it just sort of solidified what I already felt, but mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do, I didn't know how to get in. You know, I didn't have any, I, I didn't have any inside way to get inside. So was was being a press agent always the thing that you wanted to do within theater? Well, I think initially I wanted to be an actor like everybody, but I, I was always in plays and, you know, I did summer stock and I did all that stuff. But I, I think I always knew that I wasn't talented enough or tough enough and that I wouldn't be able to take the rejection. And I think I realized that pretty early on that I probably um, just wasn't, wasn't right for me. But looking back, I think if there had been a path and if I'd known more, I might've gone into like general management or um, company management or something in the producing side, but there weren't any programs like that. So it never even occurred to me. So I got, a, I got my, my bachelor's at NYU in theater and English. It was a combination, but I had always been, um, without knowing what it was, I'd always been doing the publicity for things. I was always kind of the one that would say, let's go down and sing a song during lunch hour in the cafeteria and tell people about the play. You know, I was the one that did that and knew that. So I think I had that gene. And it was only when I graduated from college 
that I, um, I was trying to get a job in a production office is what I was trying to do. And the only person I knew was Manny Eisenberg. And Manny was, the only reason I knew Manny was because Manny had graduated from NYU about 15 years ahead of me and he would come to things. And so Manny was sort of the great white hope. You know, we all thought, oh, I want to go work for Manny. And the fact is Manny didn't have any jobs, but we, that was the idea. We all thought, oh, let's go work for Manny. And so I had had an interview with his, somebody in his office and they kept saying, uh, call me in two weeks, call me in two weeks, call me in two weeks. And meanwhile, I was being offered other jobs and I kept turning them down because I wanted to work for Manny Aceberg. And one of the jobs I kept being offered was a job at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts Inc., which is the umbrella organization that oversees all of the Lincoln Center constituents, the, the, oh. the, the you know, the New York State Theater and, the, you know, all the different constituents were part of Lincoln Center Inc., and they kept offering me a job and I was so dumb that I kept turning it down because I wanted to go work for Manny Eisenberg. And finally, after a couple of months of this, and they kept saying, call back, call back. And finally, my mother said, you know, I think maybe you should get a job. You know, yeah. you're out, you know, you're, you're a grown up. And so I took the job at Lincoln Center without knowing what department I was going to be in. That's how dumb I was. I wasn't even a secretary because I couldn't type or anything. I had no skills at all. So I was like an assistant. And it turned out to my enormous thrill, the man that I worked for was the press director of Lincoln Center, a oh. wonderful man named Jack Frizzell. And Jack Frizzell realized that I had absolutely no skills at all, but that I was bright and that I could learn and that I had the gene. And he taught me. And so I wound up working for Jack Frizzell for a year and a half, who was the most wonderful, generous, lovely, funny, lovely man, and learned what it was all about. But because I had been this theater kid, I kind of came in with a lot of knowledge, some of which was helpful and some of which wasn't, but some of it was. And so I did good, you know, I was, I, and after a year and a half at Lincoln Center, which I turned out loved, they had a cutback. And because I was the last one hired, I was going to be the first one fired. And because I was the first one that they had to cut, and by this time I was kind of the little golden girl and they liked me, they felt very guilty that they had to fire me, that they had to let me go. And so they helped me. And the, the way they helped me was at that time, the, um, uh, the music theater of Lincoln Center was run by Richard Rogers. And his press agent was a very well-known press agent named Frank Goodman. And they called Frank Goodman and said, we have this, you know, bright young thing here, but we have to let go. Do you need anybody? And he said, yes. And so because they made a call, Frank hired me. And that was the first time I worked for a theater press agent. So it was kind of roundabout. But so again, very lucky. What kind of press were you doing or things that you were doing press for when you worked at Lincoln Center? Well, it was it was sort of generic stuff. Like, for instance, Lincoln Center had these at the time five constituents. So it was the, the New York City Ballet and the New York City Opera and the Metropolitan Opera and um, Lincoln Center Theater. And I forget what the other one was. And so the library was just beginning. It hadn't actually opened yet, the Lincoln Center Library. Uh, for the performing arts. So anything that they did, we would try to get like national press for. 
or say somebody wanted to shoot a movie at Lincoln Center. We were the people that arranged it. Or um, we would send out information about everything that was going on at Lincoln Center, not just the individual, you know, we would do like overview things. So it was very interesting, you know. I remember doing a, a story about the people that gave the tours at Lincoln Center because we were trying to let people know in the, you know, tourists know about the fact that they could take a tour of Lincoln and see the Met, you know, without having to see an opera. They could just go inside the Met on a tour. It was interesting. Yeah. So, so I know you were mentioning Frank Goodman, but um, who were some of the other theater press agents who you worked with early in your career? Let's see. So Frank Goodman was first, and then Bill Dahl, and then, where did I go after that? Then I was at Channel 13 for a while, which was the precursor of PBS. It wasn't quite PBS yet. It was sort of about to turn into PBS. So I worked on a lot of shows that were on public television. And then I worked for Mary Bryant, who was a big press agent at the time, where I worked with her. I worked on um, Company and Follies, which was pretty wonderful. And, and then I spent seven years in television, where I worked at USA Network and CBS and A&E. And then I came back to the theater and... Um, I worked with Merle Dubusky, who was at the, at the time, he was kind of the king of Broadway. And I worked with Merle for four years and then went out on my own. Actually, there was, I, I rearranged things a little bit, but I worked for Merle for four years and then I opened my own office in the 70s, mid 70s, late 70s. And then it was the mid 80s when I did the television, it was later. So at what point did you decide that you were ready to, or you wanted to form your own company? Uh, it was in the late 70s, after working for Merle for four years, I was, um, people like Jerry Schoenfeld would say to me, why are you not out on your own? We'll give you a show. And I'd think, that sounds good, you know. And um, and I was kind of ready. I felt that I had, you know, made a lot of, you know, established a lot of good relationships with the press people and with producers. And, you know, people liked me and they thought I was good. And and it was all with Merle's support. I mean, he was, he, he felt anybody who was, who could, should open their own office. He, he was yeah. supportive. And so um, it just seemed like the right time for me. And I did for about eight years. And then CBS made me the offer you can't refuse. And it was in the mid eighties when things were getting a little tough in the theater and money was tight and I would get a show and we'd announce the show and then the producers couldn't raise all the last bit of the money and it would fall apart. And there was a lot of that. And so CBS offered me what seemed like a wonderful opportunity. And they actually created a position for me at CBS, which was kind of unusual. And it turned out I hated it, but I didn't know that. So I closed my office and I went to CBS and I actually, I actually knew day one, it was a mistake, which was oh. tough. What are you going to do? So what were some of the things that you sort of learned about being a press agent from these early people who you worked with? Well, it was interesting because they were very savvy, these, these people, and they were very, they were very good at planning ahead. So I would sit in a meeting and I was just, you know, the kid in the office. I had no power or responsibility, particularly really. And I would sit there and they would say, 
well, if we do this, then they'll do that, and then we'll do this, and then they'll do that, which is what we're trying to get them to do. Yeah. And they would plot it. You know, they would actually sit there and say, well, this is where we want to get to, and here's how we're going to do it. And I used to sit there and think, how do you know how to do that? That's really, that's so impressive to me. And, and I rem actually, I remember saying this to Merle after we were sitting in a meeting with, I don't know, the Schuberts or something, or, or maybe Joe Papp, I'm not sure. And, and thinking, wow, these guys are so, not just smart, but it, it's so, it's such a convoluted way to think. And I'd say mm -hmm. to Merle, how did you do that? You know, how do you think that way? And he said, you'll get there. He said, you know, it just takes experience. And it's, he was sort of right because I can sort of do that now. But I remember just being so impressed with how smart and, and creative. The other one that was Frank Goodman, who was a real old style press agent. I mean, he was a real, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was, he used to handle all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. Oh, so if you ever read a book about any of the r &H shows, Frank is, is in there someplace. And he was a real character. He used to yell all the time. He yelled at everybody and everybody, you know, if you didn't get yelled at, you, you kind of hadn't made it because he yelled at everybody, including the people that worked for him. And he, but he was impossible, but he was very creative. And he would, I remember he, he handled the publicity also for a lot of television shows. And he had two artists that he liked. They were, they were kids. I think they were in college. And he, he, he would go to them and he'd say, I need a caricature of this, or I need a, a, a rendering of this. And it was maybe a television show that was coming up where instead of using a photograph, he knew that if he serviced a really clever um, piece of art, it would get used. And so the typical press agent would have just sent out a headshot or, or a production shot of, of two actors doing something. He would send this really creative picture or maybe it was a montage of several heads or something and they were it was unusual and it would get picked up and it would be on the cover of tv guide or something and when i was working for him i thought gee he seems like such a pain in the neck but look how creative he is you know and i would think i would never have thought of that that's really that was really clever and he, and so i learned a lot about that kind of to to look at a project a little bit askew to figure out how to sell it. Maybe it's not always the most head on, literally head on, you know, maybe you go around the side a little bit or you you figure out another hook. And, and I think that's what I learned from them. They were very creative, some of them, not all of them, but some of them. Yeah. So your second show, but maybe your first big hit show was Applause. So what was it like to work with Lauren Bacall and all of the rest of the great guests? Well, the, the thing about, for, first of all, I was working for Bill Dahl and this was the first big show that came down the pipe when I started to work with him. And the, the, um, the show was, as you know, was written for Bacall and it was created by Comden and Green and Adams and Strauss and directed by Ron Field. And it was just, created created using everything that she brought to the table you know her her charisma and her style and her her uh, sex appeal and everything about it was created to showcase Lauren Bacall which doesn't really happen anymore you know now yeah. people like Patti Lapone have to fit into a show that's already written this was written for her 
So we start rehearsals and I'm one of many press agents working on the show in Bill's office. And I was very much the low man on the totem pole. I was the kid in the office. I was 23, I think. And we all worked with her. We all would cover rehearsals. We, you know, we would all pitch interviews and set them up and it was fine, but she was difficult. I mean, she was tough and she'd had a tough time and she was very self-protective and she didn't, as they say, suffer fools gladly. And so everybody wanted to um, avoid having a problem with her. So what they would do is she would say, she would say to one of the other press agents, is such and such done? And because they didn't want to have any problems, they'd say, yes, it's done. And then she'd find out it wasn't done and she'd kill them. So I, on the other hand, because I was young and I wasn't, I didn't have an agenda. I wasn't, you know, I was innocent little kid. And she would say to me, is something done? And I'd say, I don't know, I'll find out. And if it's not done, I'll take care of it. And I wasn't being Eve Harrington or manipulative. I just was trying to do a good job. And the next thing I knew, I was called into the producer's office and I thought I'd screwed up. You know, I thought I'd done something bad. And they said, uh, Betty has informed us that the only person she will talk to or work with, work with in the Bill Doll office is you. Wow. Which was nuts, really. I mean, when you think about it, it was nuts. But at 23, I wound up handling what became the biggest hit show on Broadway because of her. So it was a completely, I mean, really, it was nuts to, to happen. And, and truthfully, none of them should have let that happen. You know, the other people in the build, I mean, they shouldn't, it, it shouldn't have happened. And it certainly wasn't anything I did because I wouldn't have known how to manipulate that if I'm not sure I could have done, I could do it now, but I certainly couldn't have done it then. So it was just, just happened. And she trusted me and she knew I was telling her the truth and that's what she wanted. And so that's what happened. And there I was at 23 handling applause. So it was, it was a fabulous experience for me. And, um, and I adored her. I mean, I, I knew she was difficult and I could see it with other people, but it was never to me. I also always suspected because I was so young that she, she must've known that if she ever did come at me, I would crumble and then she'd have to cope with that. So I always thought she was very protective of me. And I think she thought of me as, you know, kind of in her care a little bit. And I was very protective of her. I, I was always, you know, cared about it. And in fact, years later, I would bump into her someplace. And I maybe hadn't seen her in five or 10 years or something, you know, years later. And I'm one of those people that never assumes that people know who I am. I always say my name, you know, I say, hi, I'm Susan Schulman. And so I would see her at the theater or someplace. And I'd walk up to her and I'd say, hi, Betty, it's Susan Schulman. And she'd look at me and she'd say, I know who the hell you are. And she'd always give me a big hug and a kiss, but I would never not do that, you know, but she thought it was funny because of course she did know who I was, but I was never assuming that, you know, yeah. but um, really until, I mean, a few years before she died, you know, um, that would happen. And every time it would make me laugh because she, you know, but I was part of a very happy part of her life. Yeah. And I think that's part of it too. You know, that was applause was a very happy company and she was very happy. And it was, it was a wonderful experience for her as well as for me, but it was a wonderful, you know, she won the Tony and it, the show won the Tony and everybody loved her. And, you know, it was a big, a big triumph for her. 
So she was very happy during that time. And I'm, in, I'm sure in her mind, I was part of that happy time, you know. So as a press agent, how did you handle the replacing of this second lead out of town? Ah, interesting. I was, um, so the original, the original Eve Harrington was um, um, Diane McAfee. And for whatever reason, they decided that Diane had to be replaced. I think they felt she wasn't um, a strong enough presence opposite Betty. And, um, but I wasn't privy to that. I just knew something was going on. And I was supposed to go down to go to, I think it was Detroit um, to do some publicity stuff. And there was one of the things I was supposed to cover was an interview for Diane McAfee. And the way I discovered what was going on was they said that interview has been canceled. And it was a big interview. And I thought, what do you mean it's been canceled? You know, I just spent three days setting that up. And they said, trust me, it's been canceled. And eventually they told me why. But when I, I didn't know who was replacing her at that point. And so I was in Detroit for some other things as well, the same, you know, that trip. And one of the actors later, Jean Foote, who was a dancer in the show, who later was, was in a million shows, Pip in a million shows. And Jean Foote later told me that because they didn't know who I was, the cast, you know, it wasn't, you know, I hadn't dealt that much with the chorus people yet. And that I was a topic of great conversation because they thought maybe I was the replacement. Oh, and of course I wasn't, but they didn't know who I was. And so they were, there was, and, and I was suddenly, I was around and I was around rehearsals and I was at the show and they didn't know who I was. And they, I later found out that people thought that maybe I was going to be the new Eve Harrington. It was Penny Fuller. <laughs> so when you're, as a press agent, when you're marketing a show that's based on a famous source material, do you try to sort of say that as much as possible or as little as possible? Well, normally you would, because it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was more that the actual source material was the, the book that, that Mary Ure had written. It wasn't so much the, um, because they, they didn't quite have the rights to the film, as I recall. They had the rights to the book, the, the, the original source material, which is why there are a couple of things that are different yeah. from the film. And that's because they some, some there was something about the film rights they couldn't quite get. So it was it was a sort of dodgy thing. But I mean, luckily on something like Applause, we had so much to sell that um, you know that was maybe the third most important thing after maybe Bacall and Comden and Green and Adams and Strauss who had just come off of, you know a lot of success too. So you know that was also part of it, but maybe not quite as far up in the pecking order as it would be in another situation. Yeah. You, what was your interaction with Condon Green and Spencer Adams? Um, well, I was, um, first of all, I was thrilled to, bet, to bits, you know, Condon and Green. And I mean, come on. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story about Condon and Green. I love them. They were wonderful. And one night we were in I guess we were in Detroit and I had to bring, I had brought a journalist with me who was going to write a piece. I think it was for Look Magazine. It was a big, a big story, big deal story. 
and um, I was arranging different um, meetings with different creative people. And after the show one night, I took this journalist and Betty and Adolf out for a drink. That was going to be their little opportunity to talk to this journalist. And during the course of the conversation, this journalist, who was quite a well-known, smart fellow, said, Betty needs a rose's turn. She needs a big 11 o'clock number. And at that time, she didn't have one. And this a big long discussion in, in, ensued with, with Betty and Adolf and me and this journalist and all about how Betty, and he kept saying, she needs an 11 o'clock number. She needs, a, she needs a rose's turn. She needs a rose's turn. And, and then that was the end. And then we all went away, you know, we had drinks or dinner, whatever it was. And that was the end of it. And about a week later, a new number went into the show, which was Betty's 11 o'clock number. Now, Betty and Adolf wrote the book for applause. They did not write the music and the lyrics. Adams and Strauss wrote them. And I've always wondered if that number was written by Betty and Adolf. Oh. It's, it's the song, Something Greater, that's at the end of the show. Something Greater. Um, and I've always wondered, and, and, and nobody would ever tell you if, it, if they did write it. You know, it would never come out. And it never has come out. And I, and I don't know. I mean, they could have gone to, to Adams and Strauss and says, you know, the same thing. She needs an 11 o'clock number. But I don't know. But I always thought, I wonder if I had anything to do with that. Hmm. Interesting. And I don't, and I don't know. So from your standpoint as a press agent, when do you consider a show a success? Is it when it makes its money back or if it runs for a certain amount of time more? It could be any of those things. I mean, um, sometimes you just, I, I mean, of course you want it to, to pay back. Of course you want it to be, a, you know, financial success, but sometimes you want it to be a critical success more than anything. You know, it's hard to know. Um, yeah. It's all of those things. And also if it closes, you're out of a job. <laughs> I I want to ask you about Company and Follies, which you were mentioning you worked on both. So mm -hmm. what was it like to work with Stephen Sondheim? And I Sadly, I did not get to work with Stephen Sondheim. I wish I had. I worked for a lady named Mary Bryant, who was a very successful press agent. And she, she handled all of Hal Prince's shows. And she was extremely devoted to, to Hal Prince and very protective of her um, relationship, her professional relationship with Hal Prince. And she had been sort of discovered by Hal Prince. She had been a, um, a press associate in some press office and Hal Prince was a young producer, director, maybe just a producer then. And he liked her and thought she was smart. And he said, he sort of scooped her up and said, come with me, you know, I'll make you a star. And so she, then hitched her wagon to Hal Prince's star very successfully for both of them. I mean, it was a very, you know, she was a terrific press agent. He, you know, he appreciated it. And so she had done virtually all of the Hal Prince shows at that point. And so she didn't want anybody else to be scooped up and, 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 and appreciated by Hal Prince. So 
if Hal Prince called the office, the only person that was allowed to talk to her, to him was Mary Bryant. You couldn't say, oh, hi, Hal, it's Susan Shulman. You couldn't do that. You had to just immediately say, oh, let me get Mary for you. Look, you know, so she was very uh, protective of her relationship with Hal Prince, um, which was unusual because in every other press office I worked with, it was much more, you know, I wasn't threatening to anybody. I was just, you know, doing my job. I wasn't like trying to get the account or anything. It wouldn't have occurred to me. But she was very protective. And so anything to do with Hal and by extension, Steve, Stephen Sondheim was absolutely verboten. But because of that, when I worked on, and I was only with Mary a couple of months, I wasn't there very long, but because she, she was very focused on making, on keeping Hal happy, which was her, she felt was the most important thing in her job. She wasn't that interested in the day-to-day -day publicity stuff for the shows. Yeah. So because of that, I got to work much more closely with the casts of Company and Follies than I might have been under another, in another situation where the, where the senior press agent was more directly involved. But in, in this particular situation, she was busy with, you know, keeping Hal Prince happy, so to speak. And so, for instance, on Follies, which, of course, I loved. I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. I became very good friends with Dorothy Collins, who oh. I adored, who I thought was wonderful in the show and wonderful. And she was a wonderful, lovely human being. She was just a wonderful person. And I became quite good friends with her and stayed good friends with her for, for, for years. And it was really thanks to Mary Bryant, because Mary Bryant, under different circumstances, she would have been the one to deal with the stars in the show. But because she was busy, I got to do that. And, and this was very early on. This was like 1971. So I was, you know, pretty much a beginner in a lot of ways. So because her focus was elsewhere, it was great for me because I got to do things that I might not have had a chance to do before. So it was nice. When you were doing Follies, I was curious, there were a lot of sort of older dancers in the cast making their return. So were they eager to do publicity or did they not really want to do publicity? Oh, they were there. Everybody was eager to do publicity. Yeah. Because for them, if this was a second, you know, chance for a lot of them, you know, a lot of them had been out of the spotlight for years and years and years. Now, as I say, I was only there for a brief period, you know, so I mostly dealt with the leads. Um, but for example, I, uh, you know, became friendly with some of the people that went on people like, you know, Harvey Evans, who went on to have a very long career and stuff and was one of the juveniles in the play. And so, you know, it was, it was just such a wonderful production. It was so glorious, but I didn't, I didn't really get a chance to work with some of those older performers. I wish I had because they were wonderful, you know, Phoebe Dorsey. But, you know, and the same thing with company. It was by the time I got to company, it was in the second year. And Jane Russell had taken over for Elaine Stritch as, you know, the ladies who lunch. And Jane Russell was very interesting because she was really good in it on stage. And off stage, she was a little vague about things. Like she would say to you, um, I'd say, well, uh, maybe we could do it before the matinee. And she'd say, what time is the matinee again? <laughs> it's a little vague. Um, 
but she, once she was on stage, she was fabulous. She delivered. Um, but so it was sort of the second, the second cast, not the second cast, but some replacements yeah. uh, when I worked on company, but yeah. But they were just, you just thought, boy, this is pretty good. You know, yeah. look what I get to, look what I get to do. You know, it's wonderful. So when you're working in a press office, is there ever sort of competition over who gets to sort of handle which show or? I never had any say in it when I was an associate. Um, the senior would pretty much decide which, which show you'd be working on. And sometimes it was everybody and sometimes it was parceled out. So each person had their specific turf. Um, and sometimes it would change, you know, it, it depended. Each, each office was different, but I mean, I remember I was working for Merle and he called me in one day and he said, do you know anything about dance? I just, was maybe there six months. And I said, well, actually, yeah, I do. Um, he said, this guy, Arthur Mitchell has something called the Dance Theater of Harlem. And um, he's coming up here this afternoon to meet with us, to meet with me. He said, maybe you'd like to sit in. I said, Arthur Mitchell, my God, Arthur Mitchell was the star of the New York City Ballet. He's the most gorgeous thing. I had a crush on him when I was a kid. I mean, he was like, he and Eddie Valella were, you know. So he, Merle didn't know any of this. I mean, he didn't, he didn't really know who Arthur Mitchell was, I don't think. So Arthur Mitchell come, I don't know if you know who Arthur Mitchell was, but he was, he was the first black classical dancer and, Bal and Balanchine, you know, made him a star and, Arthur Mitchell was fabulous and then created Dancing to Harlem later. And so Arthur Mitchell came up to the office and it was just one of the most charismatic, dazzling human beings alive. I mean, you couldn't be in Arthur's presence without going, whatever you say, whatever you want, I will lay down my life. I will do, I will do anything on earth to make this happen because that's, he was so special. And so after Arthur left, and of course we had said, yes, we would handle the Dancing to Harlem. And afterwards, you know, Merle kind of went, I see what you mean. Yeah, boy, he's something I said. Yeah. And so we wound up handling the dance to follow. But in this case, Merle was smart enough to figure out who would be the right person to work on that particular client, you know. But in other cases, it was arbitrary, you know. Applause picked me. I didn't pick, you know, I didn't pick applause, so to speak. Is there any show that you had worked for a place that was handling that you regret not having been able to be involved in? So. I'm sure there were. Um, the thing about it was that none of these press offices are all that big. I mean, yeah. Brian Brown is big, uh, but now, but I mean, most of them, there's only maybe two or three associates at the most. And so even if you're not assigned to a show you're around it, you know, you're, you're sort of peripherally around it. So I think I never felt too deprived if I didn't get something. Um, mm -hmm. But it was also if you were already on a show, and then there was a new show coming in, they didn't want to take you off the old show, you know, because presumably you were doing a good job on that show. So I mean, it was a lot of things. Yeah. So were there any magazine or newspaper reporters who you particularly liked working with? As oh, gosh. Well, there was, a, there was a wonderful guy at the New York Times who was the, um, he was the arts and leisure editor named Cy Peck, who was just wonderful and really um, 
just just knew everything. You know, he was just one of these people that just brought so much to the table. And he was when I was first starting. The big thing was when you when you had a show that was coming in, you would um, take photos up to the New York Times to be for him to look through what he wanted. He would you would give them exclusive first look at everything, and they would pick what they wanted to use, and then you could give photos to the other outlets, but the Times had first shot and they had exclusivity. And I, every single time, and Martha Swope, who was the big theater photographer, the theater photographer at the time, um, was very smart. And she, we would, together, we'd pick out whatever we thought were the, you know, the five best pictures or whatever. And then she would make very large blow-ups of them, not just eight by 10, but bigger than that. And so I would come up with these very large pictures. And the theory was that if they saw them big, they would run them big in the yeah. paper. That was the theory. I don't know if it worked or not, but I don't think we were, we were putting anything over on anybody, but we would come up with these big pictures. And so I would look through them and he would always say the same thing. He'd say, don't you have anything better? And I would say to him, who would I be saving it for? <laughs> who would be more important than, than the Sunday Times Arts and Leisure section? <laughs> you know, like, who am I going to give a better picture to? Of course, these are the best pictures, you know. But he would always say that, always made me laugh. Don't you have anything better? No, I don't. <laughs> so but he was wonderful. So during this early time, were you also working as a personal press agent like you do now? Or? No, I wasn't. I only worked on shows up until the time I opened my own office because I, I didn't, I mean, that's what I did. I was an associate. I was somebody, I was a press agent's associate. And so to handle somebody in your own show would have been absolutely wrong and I would never have done it anyway. So um, no, I didn't until when I started my own business, it was different because I wasn't, um, you know, one of those two or three top press agents. And so I was scrambling for shows. And while I had shows, I didn't always have shows that lasted a long time. And so you always had to have other things uh, to fill in so that you didn't starve to death. And so um, early on, I was approached by some actors to say, would you handle us? And they weren't in shows that I was involved with. So it was fine. It wasn't, there wasn't any moral conflict or anything. And so, um, I began to do that. And then I kind of got a reputation as somebody that um, very often worked with actors that were on the cusp of stardom. So maybe they had, you know, toured in some national companies, maybe they'd starred in some off-Broadway shows, maybe they'd had a second or third lead on Broadway. And now they had that, that role that was gonna move them up to the next level and they needed somebody to help them. And so I kind of got a reputation for somebody that was good at that and helping, you know, uh, uh, enhance their visibility and to let the, help them be perceived in a slightly different way than maybe they had been before. And so that that's how that started. But I always handled shows and then actors, you know, when it came up. Yeah. So when you are sort of on the other side of it, when you're a show publicist and dealing with personal publicists as well, is that something that you like doing or? Well, it's, a, you know, it's interesting. It's some personal press agents are terrific and some of them are pains in the ass. 
And it, it sort of stems from the actor. It's interesting. For instance, the kind of actors, I mean, very often people would say to me, we wish you were the person that handled all the individual, you know, did the individual press, because I'm a press agent and I understand how a show works. I know what the union rules are. I know what you can and can't do. I know I can't bring a camera crew into a dressing room without posting it and having, you know, letting the crews know. I know the rules, but a lot of press agents that, that do individuals are from film and television and they don't. And so, you know, all hell breaks loose when a camera crew shows up in a dressing room. It's not, not so good. So they always used to say, you know, I wish they were all like you, but they're not. But the, um, the thing is, I always saw it as um, I'm working in support of the show. Whatever I do for that actor, I would never do anything that would be in opposition to whatever the show's press agent would be doing. You know, I would never try to publicize that person in a way that was in conflict with the show in some way or the star of the show, whatever. I mean, it just, it's not in me to do that. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised when it does happen and it does, but I, I it wouldn't occur to me to do that, you know? Yeah. Um, so generally, I, I mean, I don't have a, I never have a problem with the show's press agent because the first thing I do is call up and say, listen, I've been approached by so-and-so and, you know, um, you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, we're in this together. And the first thing I ask for is the is the announcement release so that I get all the information correct in anything I do. I'm perfectly happy to have them approve things if they want. You know, I don't care. I have no ego involved at all. So mm -hmm. people um, appreciate that, you know. So who have been some of your favorite people to represent as a personal? Ah, uh, well, I, I'm what, what I started to say was the kind of people that seem to want to work with me, you know, actors, are um, incredibly nice, decent human beings, in addition to being talented, and not killers. Yeah. Um, because a killer wants a killer, and I'm not a killer. So I don't often get approached by people that want a killer, which is good, because I don't want to work with killers either. So for instance, some of my very most famous favorite people who have turned into friends are Karen Ziemba, who was a client, uh, Kathleen Chalfant, who is wonderful off stages and on, um, Brian Stokes Mitchell, you know, really wonderful people in addition to being wonderful on stage. So I'm lucky because the kind of person that um, I've been lucky enough to represent have all been just terrific human beings in addition to being terrific actors so inner city is a musical you worked on that's not remembered as much today so can or, you at all so can you sort of talk about what it was sort of like and about i honestly can't remember very much about it it was sort of i just sort of remember it didn't make any sense and and it just you know it just kind of came and went there was a period where I was working for, I think that was during Bill Dahl, I think, but maybe not, um, where there was a whole string of what we used to laughingly call uni perfumes, one-nighters. And they kind of came, I don't think, I don't know if that was a one-nighter, but they kind of came and went and you worked on them and then they were gone, you know? So you didn't really have too much of a emotional connection because they were gone, you know? They just, 
I worked on one called Father's Day, which was a notorious flop. And it was notorious partly because it had really interesting people in it, but also because it opened and the, the morning of the opening, the producers read the reviews and decided to close it. And that was the same day that the Tony nominations came out. And Marion Seldes was in it and she was nominated for a Tony. So on the same day she found out she was nominated for a Tony, she found out that the play had closed. Mm -hmm. Awful. So do you find it harder to advertise a show when there's not a big name like Lauren Bacall? Sure, sure. I mean, that, but also that's when you have to be creative and figure out what it is you do have to sell. And, and it, sure, it's harder. I mean, you know, it's much harder. But you also have to, but, but in a way it's sort of fun because you have to figure it out. You know, if you have Lauren Bacall and applause, it's pretty obvious what you're going to sell. Yeah. But if you've got, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a really terrible one. Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. I worked on a show called Waltz of the Stork. Did you ever hear of that one? Yeah. Mel it was written and starred Melvin Van Peebles and his son, Mario Van Peebles, the beautiful Mario Van Peebles. And it was off-Broadway, and it was really not very good. But the, and, and Melvin, as I said, Melvin wrote it. I think he wrote the music, and he was, and he also was in it. Um, and the critics actually called it excrement. I mean excrement and Melvin who was you know who he was he was a big filmmaker and he was he was kind of the first black filmmaker to have real big success and look him up he was really something and very charismatic and very funny and smart and yeah terrific and Melvin said let's take out quote ads that say excrement I mean that's how he was he just didn't care he just said you know and I said, I don't know, I don't think that's such a good idea. But he was full of beans and he just did what he wanted because it was his money too. So, but the show was really not very good. But Melvin had the backing and he had the money and he was going to keep it going. So I would pitch interviews with Melvin because Melvin was terrific. And I would say to journalists, come and talk to Melvin. You'll have a good time. I promise you, you will enjoy talking to him. You will have, a, you will come out of it with a good story. I never once said the show is good. Never. Mm -hmm. I just said, come talk to Melvin. Just come, trust me, come talk to Melvin. You'll, you'll have a good time. And they did. And they would write about it because he was very entertaining and he was very quotable and he was, he was fun. And and later people would say to me, how did you ever publicize that show? I said, I kind of didn't. I, I publicized Melvin Van Peebles and his son, Mario, who went on to have a film career, who was very handsome, the son. And the son played a small role in the show. But because Melvin was so charismatic and Melvin just did whatever he wanted anyway, he made poor Mario dress up in a chicken suit. There was something about a chicken in the play, I forget what. And he made poor Mario, this beautiful, handsome young man, work the ticks line wearing a chicken suit giving out flyers for waltz of the stork and i used to think little do you know who's under that chicken suit there's the most gorgeous young man you ever saw but you don't know because he's wearing a chicken suit waltz of the stork yeah so 
So as a press agent, what other member of the cast or creative team do you think you work with the most closely? Probably the production stage manager and the company manager. The I, we used to kid around and say the production stage manager was like the daddy and I was the mommy a little bit, you know, like we were taking care of everybody. Um, and, and, and the company manager too, because those are the people day to day that really run the show. You know, it's not so much the producers or the general manager, it's the company manager and the, and the production stage manager. And for a press agent, those are the people you need to check, you know, union requirements or uh, scheduling or, you know, you don't want to do something that's going to conflict with a rehearsal or, um, for instance, say you want to take a photograph of, of an actor for, for doing an, an interview or something and you want to you want to photograph them under the marquee. Well, if you take the photograph under a marquee and the marquee is lit, you have to pay a crew call because you have to pay an electrician. And unless you do it right, that could cost a lot of money. You know, there's, there's rules about this stuff. So you just can't wander by and say, let's take a picture uh, or, or shoot a video of something or an interview unless you know what the rules are and, and, and take care of it. And that's where the production stage manager or the company manager come in to make sure that you've done whatever you need to do. Maybe you have to post it, you know, post it 24 hours ahead of time so that all the crew members are alerted, in which case they don't get paid. You know, there's rules. And so you can't know everything, but those people do. And so that's probably, I would say, the closest relationship. So, and, and we're helping them too, you know, it's, it's all of one. Yeah. So, um, so have there been thing press ideas that you've had that you've not been able to do because of the budget? You, we, we, we've all had what we think are brilliant ideas. And then, you know, when they work out what it would cost or the logistics, it does, you know, but, but I've had a lot of them where they did happen. Um, you know, like, dopey things like I had in for instance in State Fair there was a one of the actors um, learned to walk on stilts and he in the in the show he wore an Uncle Sam costume with very long legs and you know it was all sort of red white and blue and stuff and I had arranged for um, 45th Street to be named State Fair Way you know, they, they renamed, you know, they have a sign and, you know, they're up on the lampposts. So I said, let's get the actor in the stilt man costume to do the presentation because with him, he was right on eye level with the sign where normally you'd have a, you know, like a, a thing that goes up, whatever you call those, you know, a truck, you know, that, mm. and so I said, let's get the stilt man to do it. And that's a great picture. And I asked the guy who played this, his, Michael E. Scott, who played this, the character in the in State Fair. And he said, sure. And so we got him into costume. We got him on his stilts and he <laughs> came on his stilts. And it, that picture ran every place because it was, it was, you know, and to me it was like, it was a no brainer. Of course, this is a good idea, you know? 
And, yeah. But it was it was a good idea, and it did get picked up. And in fact, I have that picture in my book because it amused me so that there's there he is right up on eye level with the you know with the street sign saying "State Fairway." It was good. So you worked on the revival of Where's Charlie. I so did. what was it like to work with Raul Julia? Oh, be still my heart. I loved Raul. I did actually several plays with him, several musicals, and he was just wonderful. He was just, I don't know if you've seen that special they did a couple of months ago, about maybe a year ago, they did a like a PBS Masters, American Masters. If you haven't seen it, look for it. It's wonderful because he really was just, so charismatic and funny and charming and interesting and he was terrific um but the the, the wonderful story about um where's charlie was that was the musical of course that made ray bulger famous and ray bulger's signature song came from where's charlie which is once in love with amy which he used he spent his whole life performing and when we were doing Where's Charlie at the Circle in the Square one night. We found out that Ray Bulger was going to come see the show. At this point, he was getting up there. He was pretty old. And so we asked the people if Ray Bulger would like to get up and do lead the audience in Where's Charlie at the end of the show. And he said, yes. So we told Raoul. And of course, Raoul was thrilled. He thought this was a wonderful thing. And he loved the idea that Ray, the, you know, Ray Bulger was going to come and everything about it was wonderful. And so I tipped the press to come at, say, 10 o'clock at the end of the show, um, at which point Raoul was going to call Ray Bulger up on the stage and Ray Bulger was going to lead the audience in Once in Love with Amy. And we thought this was a wonderful idea. The only problem was that in the show, Once in Love with Amy comes at the end of the first act. And so the end of the first act, Raoul is doing Once in Love with Amy. And at the end of the first act, he stops the show and he says, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have the original Charlie Wickham, which is the character here with us tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Ray Bulger. And it's like nine o'clock and Ray Bulger comes running up on stage and he and Raoul love each other and they hug and they kiss and Ray Bulger. And he says, would you like to, you know, sing your song? And Ray Bulger says, yes. And it's wonderful. And he sings the whole song and the audience sings and everybody's having a wonderful time. And at the end of it, they both run off stage together. And part of me is thrilled and part of me is absolutely horrified because it's nine o'clock and the critics, the, the, the TV crews are coming at 10 o'clock. Oh. And there's no press there. It's all been for the audience and it's been wonderful, but that wasn't the point. So I run after them into the, what's called the VOM at the Circle on the Square, it's like the exit. And there's Ray Bulger sitting on a chair, looking like he's gonna die. He's like sweating and he can't breathe and he's, and, and I'm thinking he's having a heart attack and I've killed Ray Bulger. I have killed, I have personally killed Ray Bulger by inviting him to the show and, and so I'm horrified. And I'm also horrified that they just did this at nine o'clock instead of doing it at the end of the show, they did it in the middle of the show. So finally, and everybody's very concerned about Ray Bulger and they're trying to decide if they should call the ambulance. And I mean, it was really scary. And so finally Ray Bulger catches his breath and he's okay. And I, and Raul is there and I say to them, you know, that was just so wonderful. I can't, I mean, I'm in tears. It was so wonderful. Uh, unfortunately there wasn't any press here at nine o'clock and 
how would you feel about doing it again at 10 o'clock? <laughs> and they both said yes. And so at the end of the show, Raul called him up again and the audience was very happy to see him again. And he came out again and he sang One's in Love with Amy for all the camera crews and everything. And that was what happened. But it was the silliest thing because Raul got carried away. <laughs> so when you're working on a show, how many times do you usually get to see it? A lot. A lot. I might not see the whole show. I might see part of it. I might have a favorite part, um, you know, but I, a lot. And, and, and I always think how cool, you know, I think the coolest thing is that you can walk into a stage door and that people will say, hi, Susan. Yeah. That that was inconceivable to me. In fact, years ago, Merle and I, he used to call it covering the matinees on Wednesdays. We'd go in and out of all the shows check on all the shows and just you know sort of touch base with people and one day we were going in and out of the, the stage doors of the different shows that he that he had and he looked at me and he said you just love it don't you and I said I do I said but don't make fun of me you know don't don't laugh at me because I said because it was inconceivable to me I could ever walk into a stage door and have somebody say, hello, Susan, you know, how could that be? And the fact that it does happen and that I am, you know, part of this is a miracle. So I said, don't you mock me. <laughs> I, I mean it. So you represented the show Scapino twice on Broadway because, so why did it close and then come back? Well, well it originally came uh, the Circle in the Square, it, it was done at the Young Vic, and it was a huge success in London. And the Circle in the Square decided to bring it to the Circle in the Square. And so it came to the Circle in the Square. And this was the first time that anybody in America had really heard of Jim Dale. He just, you know, there he was. And he was wonderful in Scapino. And it was a big hit. And because it got such rave reviews, um, Manny Eisenberg and Gene Walsh, who were Broadway producers, decided that they wanted to move it to Broadway. But they couldn't do that until the end of the Circle and the Square engagement had ended. And also Jim had to go back to London for something. He had some other commitment at the end of the Circle and the Square run. So he went back to London for a couple of weeks and then he came back and it moved to Broadway. So that's why. And luckily when um, it happened that uh, I was working for uh, Merle Dubusky at the time and when, um, he had the circle and the square as a client. And then he also handled all of Manny and Jean shows. So we kind of went with it, you know? Yeah. So I loved Scapino. I loved working on Scapino. That was one of those shows where Jim, Jim Dale did a little shtick at the end of the show where he would divide the audience audience up into parts. And he would say, you do this and you do that. Or you sing this and you sing that. And he just, he would play with the audience. And I loved watching him do this because I just thought he was so entertaining and he's wonderful. And, and another one that's wonderful offstage as well as on, terrific guy. And I used to sit up in the circle in the square above what, what, what I call the VOM, which is above the vomitorium, which is sort of, there's like a tunnel where the actors exit and above that there are seats. And I used to sit right in the middle of uh, up there. 
And when Jim would do this thing at the end with the audience, the lights were up so he could see the audience. He could see, see people. And um, he, knew, he knew where I sat. I mean, he knew that I liked sitting up there because it, it was a good place to sit. And he would say, the people over here do this, people over here do that, that. And he'd say, you know, like, you know, like the people. And he'd say, you, and he'd point to me and he'd say, cross your legs, <laughs> legs. <laughs> and I don't know why it was funny, but it was funny. And it was like, cause I was the divider, you know, and he said, you cross your legs. And so I was always part of the act. And then he would sort of play with me. You know, he would like talk to me. And I thought that was just wonderful. I thought it was so much fun. And I would go over just to see that part, just to see what he would do, you know. Very entertaining. <laughs> well, I next want to ask you about doing press for Miss Moffat with Betty Davis out of town. So what was it like to work with her? Well, sadly, I did not get to work with her and I did not get to see it. But I was there. I mean, I was working. That was that was Frank Goodman and was the press agent. It was very early on. And there was great excitement about Miss Moffat. Ooh, this was, you know, it just sounded, it was, um, it sounded really good on paper, you know? And I, and there were a lot of rumors about what happened and I kind of didn't know. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't kind of privy to too much. What I do know was that I was, among other things, I was sent to the library to do research on Betty Davis to see if I could come up with some things that maybe nobody knew. And one of the things that I found, which I, I might still have someplace, I found an old um, like studio portrait that was done, you know, from whatever the studio was that she worked at. And there was this perfectly nice, very beautifully lit photograph of her. But somebody had taken like magic marker or something and where say she had a waist that went like this. Yeah. They had drawn in like tri black triangles on either side of her waist to make her waist look smaller. But it, the way it was done was very obvious that it was, I mean, it wasn't as if she was against say a black background where it might've been less obvious. She wasn't, she was just, you know, wearing a dress. Maybe there was a white background and there were these, and I always thought, who did that? Did she do that? Did, did some publicist think they were just going to make her look thinner? How did that happen? And this was a, you know, like a, a, a real photograph that was in Lincoln Center Library. So it must have come from the film company or something. And I always just thought, wow, the power of the film studios in those days to just say, let's make her thinner. Let's make her waist smaller. Like, I want somebody to do that for me. You know? So very strange. But, um, but sadly, I wasn't close enough to meet her or be around it or anything. And and I, I never really knew whether she quit or whether I, I think she quit, but I don't know. I, 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 somebody not too long ago sent me a souvenir book that was created for it. And, and it was so weird to see it after all these years, you know, but doesn't it sound like a good idea? You know, the corn is green and, and Betty, I mean, everything about it sounds good. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. you know, and you know, who was the, um, I don't know if you know who he is. There was a young black actor named Dorian Harwood who went on to do a lot of film work and stuff, who was the young man who played the young, well, originally it was a minor 
um, but it was set in the South in this production, so it was different. But he was wonderful. And, and then it closed and sort of his career kind of didn't go anyplace for a while. And I always thought, why isn't this guy a big star? Because he was really, he had charisma and he was handsome and he was terrific. Uh, but in those days, being a, you know, black leading man, you know, wasn't so easy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took Norm Lewis to get there, I think. But, um, but Dorian Harwood was really spectacular in that. And I always wondered, you know, if that had happened, if, if he'd had a different career, because he really was good. Yeah. So I want to ask you, because I think it might be around this time, what was the first show that you represented on your own? It might have been Cotton Patch Gospel, maybe. I don't know. There were a couple around the same time, and some of them lasted and some of them didn't. I had a bunch that didn't last very long. Um, Cotton Patch Gospel was written by um, Tom Chapin, who was Harry Chapin's brother. And it was a retelling of the Gospels in um, sort of Southern Baptist country music style. And Tom was in it, in fact. And what was funny about it was that here I am, a nice Jewish girl, and I'm handling this very Christian show. And I mean, it was all, you know, kind of country music, but it was the telling of the Gospels. I mean, that's what it was. And the producer, who was also Jewish, um, and I used to, you know, find all this amusing. But what what happened was I was approaching all these Christ, all these Christian media outlets and Christian bookstores and and the uh, Council of Churches, and I was doing all this outreach to various, you know, Christian groups. And I sat down with Tom Chapin and the and the and the the man that wrote co-wrote it with him, and I said, "You have to help me with some phrasing and some, you know, buzzwords." And so I learned all these, you know, fellowship and I learned all the right words to use in my pitch letters. And they were, they were great. They, you know, they, they were really good and they helped me with them because I wanted to make it right. But at the end it would say, you know, yours in fellowship, Susan Shulman, which kind of, <laughs> it's like, like Jewish person, you know, it's like, and so the producer and I used to laugh and he'd say, you know, if you really had your heart in this, if you were really committed, you would change your name to church person. <laughs> so it was more Christian. <laughs> yeah, but um, I love that gospel. It was fun. It's a good show. How did you become the official press agent for the circle in the square? Well, I was Merle's associate, actually. I wasn't the um, senior, Merle was. Merle had been handling it before I got there. And then I handled it for about four years and um, uh, got to handle some pretty pretty good stuff. George C. Scott, you know. What was it like to work with him? Well, he was wonderful. I mean, I loved him. He was, um, he was scary because he was very big and very imposing and had this kind of scary reputation of being kind of tough and, you know, a little bit out of control and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it was the circle in the square or whether it, these were projects that he was very committed to, but I never once saw that side. And I know it was there, but I never saw it because he, 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 for instance, with death of the salesman, he both directed it and played Willie Loman. 
And what he did was he hired a very, very good actor named Roy Poole to be kind of his stand-in as if it were a film where, so as a director, he could step back and look at a scene as a director and Roy would play Willie. But he was such a generous actor and such a generous director that he did not make Roy Poole play it like George C. Scott. He let Roy Poole play Willie the way he wanted to play Willie, and which was really generous because he didn't have to do that. And, and you know, most directors wouldn't have done that. But he, George was very, very generous and particularly with actors, he was really wonderful. And um, he, it was, I mean, he was wonderful, but he was also, um, he was very um, private, very, very, you know, like when he was at the theater, he was open and warm and friendly. And once he left the theater, it was like, don't, don't trespass, you know, these are my, this is my life and this is separate. And so if you wanted to reach him, you, you kind of had to go this very circuitous route to get to him. You couldn't just pick up the phone and call him. Um, so it was, it was very interesting because on one hand, when you go to the theater, you'd get this warm, you know, generous person. And then, but, but there was a, there was a point which you didn't go beyond. Yeah. It was interesting. So in your experience, do you think that there is a big enough star that can keep a show open just on the strength of their name or? I'm sure. I'm yes. I think there are, but I don't think it's a given anymore. I think it used to be, you know, it was Mary Martin and Ethel Merman and Carol Channing, and you know. But I, I think now it's more about the the production. You know, the I mean, like Patty Lapone, who is fabulous, can't guarantee, you know, a hit. Yeah. Uh, and and she should, you know, but. She's, there's been plenty of times when her being in something hasn't made it a hit because maybe the show wasn't as good. You know, the what was the thing they just she just did with um, Christine Ebersole a couple of years ago? War paint. War paint. And and I mean, you know, that didn't last all that long. I don't know how long it lasted, but it wasn't a hit. And you'd think with those two ladies, and they were wonderful. I don't know if you saw it, but they were terrific. Yeah, I mean, they were wonderful, but it didn't work, you know, it didn't quite do it. Um, so it, it, I don't think it's quite the same, but, but shows aren't written for stars now. You know, they're not created around them. They have, the, the, the actors have to fit into what's written. Yeah. So it's not using everything that Patti Lapone or Christine Eversole brings. It, it used a lot of what they brought. I thought, you know, they, they were both wonderful, I thought. But, you know, it used to be that the the songwriters knew what notes Ethel Merman, you know, could knock out of the ballpark, or they knew what Mary Martin, you know, that you know, like when they wrote Peter Pan, the writers knew that she had a a a, a top soprano voice, yeah. which most people didn't know because she hadn't used it on Broadway, but they did know, and so they wrote a song, you know, on My Mysterious Lady, which uses that coloratura soprano that she had, and, you know whoever else plays Peter Pan, maybe they don't have that, those notes, but they wrote it for her. So, you know, I don't think that really happens anymore. You know, I, I can't think of a show. Can you think of a show recently that's been written for somebody specifically? I can't. No, I can't either. Oh, 
not 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 in the way they used to like hello dolly or you know it was written for that persona you know they knew that she could walk down that staircase and that you know the whole place would levitate you know they they knew that yeah. or they knew that when mary martin sang wonderful guy that everybody would lose their minds you know or that roses turn they knew that because they wrote it using everything that they brought to the table so it was shaped to make it to make Mary Martin look fabulous. I mean, not that she wasn't fabulous, but to make her even more fabulous or Ethel Merman, you know, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's not, um, it's just backwards a little bit, you know? But, but for example, when we did, when, when I did Sly Fox, which was another one of the shows I did with George C. Scott, um, I remember that now here we had like one of the biggest stars in the world, you know, playing the lead in this play. And when we were working with the advertising agency to create the, the logo for the show, they very deliberately did not use a photograph of George C. Scott. Instead, they used a kind of cartoon face that really could, could have been anybody. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be George. And he had a, he had a, a nightcap and yeah, and it, but it was a, a cartoon. And it was very deliberate because they knew George C. Scott was signed for six months and they hoped, and they were right, that it would go on after George left and they didn't want to have to revamp the look of the show. And so that logo, you know, I mean, if it had been anybody else, they might've objected, but George C. Scott didn't care about stuff like that. He, he you know, his ego wasn't at all involved, but I remember being in those meetings and it was, and some of the images were George C. Scott initially, you know, that they proposed. And the, there's a very specific discussion about it and a very deliberate choice to not use an image or even something that, re, that remotely looked like George C. Scott so that when the next actor came in to play the part, they, you know, it would work and they were right. And, and it was such a successful image that when the show was revived a couple of years ago with Richard Dreyfus, they used the same logo. Oh, really? Which is interesting because you wouldn't, I mean, I was surprised they did that actually. Um, because when they revive other things, they don't often, like with Oklahoma, they've always used different logos and, you know, but for Sly Fox, they use that image because I guess, I guess they felt it still worked. It was interesting. But when Robert Preston came in, he didn't look anything like that logo either. You know. So I want to ask you about the revival of Pal Joey, which you worked on. <laughs> the two leads changed during rehearsals. And yes. Why was that? Well, it was. This was also with the Circle in the Square. So it was supposed to be Eddie Vallella, Edward Vallella, of the star of the New York City Ballet, and help me, um, Eleanor, Eleanor Parker. Eleanor, Eleanor Parker. I was going to say Eleanor Powell. I knew that was her. Eleanor Parker. So um, she was a movie star. And so rehearsals, and I was thrilled because Eddie Valella had also been one of my idols when I was a kid in New York City Ballet, along with Arthur Mitchell. So I was like, this is, he's still my heart. So they start rehearsals and Eddie Valella seemed perfect. I mean, he had that sort of swagger and he was kind of a New York kid and he had the, he had the confidence and he had the look and he was charismatic and he could, he could do everything. The problem was that he couldn't find his note. 
he couldn't find the note to start. Yeah. And he, he was very confident with dancing, but he was not confident with singing because he'd never really sung before on stage. So they worked with him and he worked with a you know, musical director and he was beginning to get comfortable with the singing. And then we had the sits probe, which is the first time the actors hear the full orchestra and he couldn't find the note and it threw him. And so they tried different things to make the note stand out for him and he couldn't do it. So what would happen was he'd sing every song like a half note off, which is actually very hard to do and also makes you crazy, but he, he couldn't find the note. And when he did find the note, he was okay. You know, he wasn't Frank Sinatra, but okay, you know, he could do it. But it shook him so that he lost confidence. And so in rehearsals, he would add dance numbers. He would throw in, you know, some little dance number that wasn't written in the show, but who cared? It was Eddie Valella, so it was fine. But it became so, you know, he was compensating for the fact that he knew he wasn't doing so well with the singing. And he didn't, he'd also never rehearsed a musical before. And he was thrown by the fact that, you know, you do an hour singing and then an hour dancing and an hour book and then an hour of costumes, fittings. And, and he, was, he, he felt he was being pulled in a million directions and he didn't know what he was doing. And so he quit. And he was replaced by Christopher Chadman, Chris Chadman, who was a wonderful singer, dancer, actor, who was perfectly fine in the role and, and was um, not a star. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't a leading man yet. You know, he could have been, but he wasn't, he was a chorus boy at that point, but very good. And she, it turns out, was in the early stages of some kind of Alzheimer's or something, but nobody knew it. And so she couldn't remember her lines. And so she would start a line and she couldn't remember it and she'd say line and they give her the line and then she couldn't remember that. And so this went on for a little bit and then she quit. And so it was Chris Chadman and Joan um, Copeland took over as Vera. So now we had a completely new, two, leading, <laughs> two new leading actors. So we were kind of starting fresh. And Joan, who was very experienced and had been around for, you know, she was in two by two. And I mean, she, you know, she was very experienced and Arthur Miller's sister, as everybody always says, you know, and she was fine. She knew exactly what to do. And she took over like, you know, duck to water. She was fine. The only thing was there was an actor in the play named Joe Sirola, who had, I can't remember what he played, but he played something. And one night, Joe Sirola, and she, he had a scene with, with Vera, with Joan Copeland. And one night, for, for reasons nobody really knew, he decided to play the scene with a very strong, like, Italian accent. So he came out instead of saying, hello, how are you? He said, hello, how are you today? Or something. And Joan Copeland was not having it. She was not amused and she wasn't going to do it. And so she just looked at him and didn't answer. And he was going, Rrr. and she was just like, <laughs> and this went on for a while. And then she said, if you ever do that again, 
you're out. And but it was one of those shows where, you know, it was kind of one catastrophe after another. And in the end, it was fine. You know, in the end, they were both very good. But it was a challenge. And I kept wishing that Eddie Valella had hung in there because I kind of felt he could have done it. You know, nobody expected him to be, you know, Pavarotti. Um, it was Eddie Valella, you know, but um, he, he lost confidence. And I think he thought, what do I need this for? You know, yeah. I think he felt he was going to embarrass himself in some way and just left. Did it become harder to sell after? He well, had- it was certainly a different project. You know, we certainly had different things to promote. Um, I think that was the moment when it became all about Pal Joey instead of about the actors. Yeah. Suddenly it was, we were, you know, we were selling Rogers and Hart. You know, I mean, the good thing about the Circle in the Square too was that it was, while it was, it's, it's considered a Broadway house and it's, you know, eligible for awards and stuff. It also is a, uh, at the time anyway, was a subscription theater and they were limited runs. So, you know, you only had so many seats you had to fill because you already had a subscription uh, base of, you know, maybe half the house or a third of the house or something. So, you know, it wasn't like you had to sell, you know, 1400 seats a night, unlimited, you know, it was, it was more contained than that. So that was good. So I want to ask you about doing The Merchant Out of Town with Zero Mostel. Okay. What was it like to work with Zero Mostel? Well, as you, I'm sure, have read, this, the, the Merchant was, as I call it, the show that killed Zero Mostel. Mm-hmm. And the, the Merchant was written by Arnold Wesker, and it was directed by John Dexter and starred uh, Zero Mostel. And it was... Um, the retelling of the Merchant of Venice from the Jewish perspective. It was written as, as if from Shylock's perspective. And everybody, including the Schubert's and everybody involved thought this was going to be the kind of snob hit of the year. This was gonna be like Equus. This was gonna be the thing, you know, thinking audiences needed to see. And it was very interesting. I mean, it was very well done. It was also very, very, very long. It was over four hours when we first, when it first got on stage the first night. Um, but it was really long and it was very dense and it was beautifully, it was gorgeous sets and gorgeous costume. I mean, it was really elegant and very opulent and it was quite something. Um, the, prior to rehearsals and, and Zero Mostel was very devoted to it. He, he felt that it uh, tapped into his uh, sense of, of uh, his own Jewish heritage and he felt very connected to it and he wanted to do it. And, Prior to rehearsals, he lost 100 pounds on what was then known as the liquid diet. There was a very popular diet that people went on, and he went on it with doctor's supervision, and he passed all the medicals, and he passed all the insurance. I mean, he was fine, or so we thought. And he started rehearsals, and it was one of those shows that if it can go wrong, it did go wrong, right from the get-go. I mean, right from, like, day one. And um, Zero was not easy. John Dexter was the director was a very different was was known for being somebody who played actors against each other. He, he um, uh, was very cruel to his actors. He always found somebody to pick on and made that person the scapegoat. And so that person was always in tears. In this case, it was Julie Garfield, John Garfield's daughter was was the scapegoat early on. And she was 
put through hell. And everything, it was a very unpleasant environment to be in because you 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 felt like you were going to just get shot at it at any minute. I mean, it was really hard. For instance, um, nobody was allowed to go to rehearsals. So I had to go to rehearsals because that was the only way I could deal with the actors and say, can you do this interview or could you do this photo shoot or whatever? That's how you, you know, you, you catch them in between or whatever. And also how you see what's going on. So you figure out what you have to sell. And Dexter said, no, I don't want any producers or any press agents in the rehearsals. So we had to sort of skulk around the corners. And anyway, so it was very difficult and very unpleasant. And he was very busy playing everybody against each other. And finally, 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 and it was very, very, very long. And finally, we go to Philadelphia and, and they're finally going to. And, and it was so long, they never had a run through in, oh. in a full run through. They'd never run through the whole play. So, you know, that everybody was, you know, very nervous. So everybody goes down to Philadelphia for the first preview, which was on a Friday night. And we all go down there and the show is over four hours, like four and a quarter hours. And so obviously the show has to be cut, but everybody was so relieved that we, that they got through it, that they actually did the whole show because nobody knew if they could do it. I mean, it was just crazy. So at the end of the evening show, uh, Merle and I were going to stay over and go to the matinee the next day. And the Schubert said, do you want to drive back with us in the limousine? And so we said, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> so we get in the limousine and we drive back to New York in the middle of the night. And the next day, Zero doesn't feel well. And they call the doctor and they take him to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows what's wrong. Nobody knows what's going, you know, he's just, they don't know if he had a heart attack. They don't, they don't know. And they're doing tests. And meanwhile, the show is canceled because there's no leading man. And meanwhile, they're cutting the show and they're cutting the play and people don't know if their parts are going to be cut out. Everybody's all hysterical. And finally they decide that zero is okay. And is, and they're going to cancel Philadelphia and they're going to just start again in in the Kennedy Center, which was the next stop in the pre-Broadway engagement before Broadway. And Zero's wife is on the way to Philadelphia to pick him up and he falls out of bed and dies. Um. Yes. And so I find out on television that night, nobody thought to call us and tell us. So I, I, I'm watching the news and they say, Zero Mustel died. So now we've got a dead actor playing the lead in a Broadway show. And um, the director, who by this time wasn't really talking to anybody, announces to the Schuberts that the play has to go on if they want him to direct it immediately. And that he has Laurence Olivier and Anthony Quinn and some other really famous actors in his back pocket. And he will get one of them to replace Zero Mostel. So the Schuberts say, okay. And so it turns out he didn't have anybody in his back pocket. And so the replacement for Zero Mostel, this very larger than life actor was his understudy whose name was Joseph Leon, who was a perfectly good, very capable character actor who had no more chance of replacing Zero Mostel than I did. I mean, you know, it was just not in the cards. And so the play opened and it got terrible reviews and it closed, I don't know, a week later or something.
but everything that could have gone wrong went wrong on that show. And so by the time Z died, it was almost like, well, yeah, of course he died. You know, I mean, it was so, it was so, it was such a terrible experience for everybody involved that we're all bonded for life because we lived through this disastrous show. So by the time he died, you, it was kind of like you were, you were expecting something terrible to happen and it did. The best part, not the best, but the, the, the kicker to the whole thing was closing night on Broadway. The, the cast, who is completely by this time demoralized in every way possible. And, and you know, part of them are horrified it's closing and the other, the other part of them is thrilled that it's closing because it's been such a terrible experience and everybody's so unhappy. Closing night, every theater on Broadway has a fire curtain and you don't see them anymore. They used to bring them down at intermission and, to sh and it's to, to separate the audience from the, the stage if there's a fire. And I never was sure which one was supposed to burn up, you know, is, is it like come down so the actors can burn up or is it come down so the act, you know, I never quite understood that, the, but anyway, but theaters all have them. It's just that we don't see them anymore. And they're big, heavy, 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 like almost cement curtains that, that are up in the flies. And on closing night of The Merchant, the actors are taking their final call, curtain call, and out of the corner of their eye, they see the fire curtain start to come down and right where they're standing. I mean, it's coming down like, and they see it and they pull each other back upstage so that they're not in line to be, to be crushed. And the fire curtain comes down and everybody is like shocked because they can't believe that this was happening. And Roberta Maxwell, who was in the show said, zero just had the last word. And this is absolutely true. It was so weird. So yeah. The Merchant was a interesting experience. And when I started to write about it for my book, I reached out to several people that had been worked on The Merchant because we, as I say, we all were like bonded. And in fact, I reached out to Julie Garfield and to the production stage manager and some other people. And I said, is there stuff that you remember that I don't remember? And, and we were all like comparing war stories because we didn't all know everything, but Together, we knew a lot. And Julie said to me, I didn't know that anybody else knew that he was being so cruel to me. And I said, he was awful to you. In, in fact, I remember throwing some publicity stuff her way because I felt so badly that he was treating her so terribly. And she said she had no idea. She thought that it was in her head that, you know, like she had failed in some way or she was a terrible actor or something that, that that's why he was so cruel to her. And it seemed somebody else said he, John Dexter was like, it was like picking at a scab. He knew just how to kind of hurt people. And it was so interesting because everybody was aware of it and nobody kind of told each other. And later, Arnold Wesker, the, the playwright, um, wrote a book about, he had been keeping a diary uh, which nobody knew at the time. He kept a very extensive diary and he wrote a book called um, The Birth of Shylock and the Death of Zero Mostel. And it's his ver his take on what happened during this production. It's very interesting. You would, you would love it if you haven't read it. Um, it. And it's so interesting because one of the things that's in the book, I mean, a lot of this intrigue and, and, and all the bad feelings and all the terrible things that went on um, 
and also a few affairs that I didn't know about were in the book too. But um, the funny thing that Arnold did was in the book, a lot of the play was cut during this, you know, these months that we were out of town or weeks. And Arnold, this was all against his will because this was his play and he didn't want, you know, huge chunks taken out. And in this book, he, he published every single word that was cut from the play is in that book. Oh. <laughs> so he, he kind of had the last word, literally. So what did you think at that time that they should have done after Zero Mostel died? I think they should have gone away. I think they should have closed the show. I think the writing was on the wall at that point. And um, unless, unless somebody wonderful had come along who could have replaced him. And it, but it wasn't Joe Leon's fault. I mean, he just didn't, you know, just didn't have a prayer. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe if it had been, you know, Laurence Olivier or somebody, maybe it would have worked. But it, it, it really was one of those cursed productions that you just think, uh, how many more terrible things have to happen before we all stop? Yeah. You know, and I felt the star dying was a really good sign that we should have stopped. Yeah. Yeah. So the next show that you did was dancing. So uh -huh. what was it like to work with Bob Fosse? Oh, he was wonderful. I think he was the most um, knowledgeable theater person I've ever worked with. I mean, completely knowledgeable about every part of the theater. I mean, he was extraordinary. He could, he could hear, he could look at a lighting cue and say to Jules Fisher, um, Q47 needs to be two beats slower. You know, I mean, to have such technical knowledge about something so, you know, so able to pinpoint what the problem was and how to fix it. Yeah. Or there was a costume in, in dancing where they had polka dots all over the costume. And he turned to Willa Kim and he said, it needs more polka dots. And he was right. When, when there were more polka dots, it was funnier. I don't know why it was funnier, but it was funnier. It was a number where the, the dancers appeared to have their feet nailed to the floor. And so they, their feet never moved, but everything else moved. And so they were kind of jiggling around and doing funny things and stuff. And for some reason, he, it, it was funnier with more, with more balls on the costumes. I mean, how, how would you know that? How would anybody know that? He knew that. You know, or he, he I remember him, him saying once, uh, bump up the, um, the microphone on the flute player in the orchestra. I mean, you know, who can hear that? Who can hear that specific thing to know that would make it better if it was, you know, he, he could do that. Aside from the dancing part, which obviously he knew what to do, mm -hmm. but he really was something. He really could, he was a real kind of the complete theater person. It was, it was fascinating, you know? Yeah. So uh, when you worked with him, how sort of in good health was he? The, he? He seemed fine then. I mean, except the fact that he smoked nonstop. I mean, he always had a cigarette, you know. I thought the um, that series, you know, Fosse Verdon, I thought they really captured him very well. And, and Gwen Verdon too, although I didn't know her very well. I knew her a teeny bit, but uh, she was around during dancing. Um, but I thought they captured Fosse very well. I mean, he was the most charismatic, sexy, 
um, interesting man, and he could also be very cruel and very, you know, I mean, the, the, the dancers adored him and hated him at the same time. You know, there was a very mixed thing, but very devoted to him. I mean, he could have said, go jump off the bridge and they all would have jumped off the bridge. You know, they were just completely devoted to whatever he, you know, said to do because he was right. You know, there was a wonderful thing that I always remembered about that show, which Gwen Verdon was around um, and was kind of, I mean, she was very much his soulmate. You could see it. And they were very connected. You could you could see, you know, the, the, whatever else there was. And I don't know what else there was. But at that time, they weren't together as a couple. He was with Anne Ryan King, actually. Um, but they, their connection was very obvious. And I remember once them sitting in the orchestra during a rehearsal. And they were sitting, like there were three seats. And they were sitting on opposite, you know, across, and it was a seat between them. And they were facing in like this. And their like their legs or their hands were sort of intertwined like this, and they were like nose to nose. And whatever I don't know what they were talking about. Whatever they were talking about, it was so it was such a picture of these two absolutely brilliantly talented people who were so connected to each other in some you know way. And who knows what you know they could have been discussing what was for dinner. I don't know, but you could see the 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 connection was so strong and I thought isn't that look at that isn't that I mean like how lucky am I to see this because yeah. it was so clear that these two people were you know like this it was wonderful so what were the ways in which you sort of publicized the show well everything with dancing was about Bob Fosse and it should have been I mean it was his show and his vision and and Anne Ryan King and, and some of the other dancers, you know, were were the next level of publicity. And um, and they and they all got, you know, some of them, at least some of them, certainly Annie did, um, got acknowledgement because they were wonderful. That, that was the most wonderful uh, group of dancers. I mean, they were just all stars. I tell you something very interesting about dancing. The curtain call, each dancer came out and their name was written above them. You know, it was was on a, was behind them on a screen or something. I can't remember, but it was it was like you know flashed. And each dancer came out and did their sort of signature move, whatever it was—a leap or a twirl or something. And each one was named, so it would say you know Susan Shulman, you know, as they came out and took the curtain call. So you knew who they were, you knew their name, and you you know you got it. And it was so interesting because a chorus line was the absolute flip of that, where Michael Bennett and, and some of them were the same dancers. Don't forget, you know, there were people in dancing that were also in a chorus line. In a chorus line, everybody was made to be anonymous at the end. When they come out for the final number, you can't tell who anybody is. They're all in the, in the gold outfits with the hats and they go, you know, but you, it's, it's hard to see who everybody is and you certainly don't know their names. And it was such an interesting thing because it was two brilliant choreographers who had completely different takes on the actor, you know, the dancers. It was very interesting. So that show became a giant hit that ran for, I think, four years. So what do you think the reason for that was? Was it solely Bob Fosse or? I think so. I mean, it was brilliant. It was just a wonderful show. And then there was a sort of revival that was called Fosse, 
which was recreated by, I think, Anne Reinking and some other people, which was kind of a, you know, it was really a revival of dancing, which wasn't quite as good. And I think it wasn't quite as good because it didn't have Bob Fosse. It yeah. had, you know, he wasn't, I think he, uh, I can't remember, but I think he was gone by then. But it was, it was kind of like the stepchild a little bit, you know, uh, like the carbon copy. It was the carbon copy, but it wasn't quite the original, you know. And so it w didn't quite work. Um, but he was, I mean, he was just something on another plane, you know, he, he really obsessed about every, you know, every finger, every, you know, he used to call them teacup hands, you know, it couldn't be this way, it couldn't be this way, it had to be this, you know, he, he, yeah. everything counted. And so he never stopped rehearsing. He never, I mean, they used to say it's half hour, you have to let us, you know, you have to stop and he, he didn't want to stop. I remember once we were in Boston or someplace before it came into New York and they had a, they had a rebellion because he kept rehearsing them. And um, they, f they finally said no. And they got the equity, you know, you know, representative, whatever it was. And they said, um, you have to stop. You can't rehearse them anymore. And he said, but uh, you know, don't you want it to be right? What's the matter with you? Aren't you, you know, aren't you loyal to me? And he, and they were all like dropping dead, you know, they were so tired. And he was furious that they wouldn't keep going because it was for him. And it was to make the show better. It wasn't like, you know, he couldn't understand why they wanted to eat, you know, yeah. <laughs> go to the bathroom, you know, and he was furious. But, um, uh, but he, I think it was because he was so extraordinary. Um, and, and it wasn't, nothing ever slid, you know, it, it had to be this way. It couldn't be this way. You know, it had to be exactly the way he wanted it, uh, but he was right. You know, he knew. So I want to ask you, um, what show that you worked on that didn't turn out to be as successful did you think deserved to be? I think State Fair, actually. State Fair, the timing was bad. State Fair opened the same season as Rent. Oh. And everybody was all hysterical about how Rent was this new version, you know, this new theater and new everything. And then, you know, the author died and it became a whole thing about that. And, and, and State Fair was like comfort food. State Fair was this old fashioned Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that you just got all warm and fuzzy. You know, it, it just made you feel good. And I used to say it's comfort food, you know. And I think if it had opened at a different season, it would have been, it would have gone better because the show prior to Broadway, we toured for nine months and everywhere that show went, it was a rave. I mean, the reviews were like out of their minds. And um, the, somewhere along the line that, you know, things changed and it was the same show, but it was done in an old fashioned way. It had old fashioned sets. It wasn't, you know, it had push sticks instead of, um, electronic things, moving things. It was all, it was done in a style that was very true to the period and it worked. And the, the actors worked, it, it, the music worked, the songs worked, the, the dancing worked. And it was, it was, I used to say that, that we would watch the audience and about five minutes in, you'd look at the audience and everybody would be sitting there with a big stupid grin on their face because there was something about it that felt you, you went in knowing half the songs, 
you yeah. went in liking all the actors that you knew up there. It was Donna McKechnie and John Davidson and Catherine Crosby and Andrew McCartney. It was all people you knew, Scott Wise and Ben Wright and all these people that, you know, people had sort of had affection for. And there was something about it that just engaged you. And we used to laugh and say, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it now. And, and you'd sit and look at the audience and everybody would be sitting like this and looking up at the stage with these big stupid grins on their face. And I always felt that that was a show that it deserved better than it got. Um, but it was also very fraught because it was, it had, uh, David Merrick had come in and kind of saved them when they were out of town. They had run out of money, the, the Theater Guild. Mm -hmm. And David Merrick invested a lot of money in it. And at the time, David Merrick could not walk or talk. He had had a stroke and he was totally incapacitated. And his um, companion was kind of calling the shots. And, uh, and she would say, well, Mr. Merrick wants you to do this. Mr. Merrick feels, and Mr. Merrick couldn't speak. So we, didn't, we never knew how she knew that, but. Yeah. But she was, you know, we used to say she's standing on the checkbook. So, so a lot of decisions were made that maybe wouldn't have been made if he really had been in charge, but you didn't have any choice. And so, you know, it was a very tough thing. And um, it was sad because I think that is a show that deserved, there was an audience for that show. And it's the fact that it's still done everywhere. You know, it's, it's become very, very popular. It's done a lot. Um, is interesting because I, I just think in a different, a different season, it might've done better. So I want to ask you about another musical you did, which was Cleavage. Cleavage. Oh my goodness. You did. Cleavage. <sighs> Cleavage was a, I, I, I don't remember that much about it, except that it was sort of fun and it had a really cute logo and um, it was a really big flop. <laughs> and I think it was cleavage that was put, I think it was cleavage that was put on by a bunch of uh, producers that were in all. Now, by all, I mean the kind of black stuff that comes up out of the ground, all. <laughs> they went all, as they used to say. And they were very, very rich. And they decided to bring this play to Broadway and they were lovely people and they had never done anything like this before. And opening night, we had a party at Sardi's and I said to them, well, at a certain point, I'm going to get the review. I'm, I'm, I'll have the New York Times review in my hand because we used to have in those days, you had to go to the New York Times and pick up a copy and they would they would send it downstairs they would send down like a Xerox copy of the review as they were setting the type so you could get the advance before it was in print. And I said to him, at a certain time, I'll have the review. And um, do you want me to come and find you or do you want to find me? And, you know, so you can see it. So we arranged and I, and it was terrible. And I had the review and they saw me and I said, I have the review. And so we went outside and we, they read the review and it was terrible. And they said, well, we sunk a hole and it came up dry. And that's how they looked at it. They were, they were oil men and they, they knew things were risky and they'd had a very good time producing this play. And they were having an opening night party at Sardi. So it was all very glamorous and show busy. 
and that was it. Yeah. We sunk a hole and it came up dry. So <laughs> as a press agent, how do you market a show that has sort of a unlikely or like a title like that? that well, it, it actually, I can't remember what it was, but there was a, a slogan that went with it. It was something clever about cleavage and I can't remember what it was, maybe you know. Um, I think it was something like close to where your heart is. Yes, yeah, something like that, yeah. So, you know, they were trying to play it both ways. The, 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 the logo went like this, so it sort of looked like cleavage, but it also looked like a heart or, or it looked like a lips, I think looked like a kiss. So it was supposed to, you know, it was, it was like a pun sort of. Um, but I mean, there wasn't much to worry about because it closed, you know? Yeah. I think there were some good people in it, as I recall, but it, it didn't last very long. Um, sunk a hole and came up dry. Hmm. Thank you all so much for tuning in and remember to come back next time for part two of my interview with the wonderful Susan L. Shulman.